Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Coming from our respective bunkers in uh, (laughs) (laughs) mine in Connecticut, his in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, man, that's, I don't know what to say. We were just talking uh, to Dan Wallin an hour ago. But it seemed like uh, last week for you, dear listener. Yes, but we recorded two was. shows one day, and you said so, you've uh, gotten through your hurricane, and I am suffering in the terrible sunny days of being on the ocean on the west coast of Canada. That's just terrible. Oh, I got a story it, for you. Actually, suffering. I got a story of hacking, and this okay. story is in. Uh, you can see it at the .dotnet show dot com, where I actually show this. I have this mixer, and uh, I'm a, I play in a band. And Mm -hmm. we used to have big mixing boards with a lot of faders and all that stuff for sound guys and whatever. But I got a a headless mixer. So it's a 32-channel box. It's a black box. It's got 32 microphone inputs, and it's got 16 headphone outputs, each with their individual mixes that can be controlled by the musicians themselves on their phones. It's really, really cool. So the bass player could turn it up just for the bass player. That's right. And he can turn down my guitar, which is everybody's always telling me, turn it down. So uh, being a guitar player, I like to hear a lot of guitar. So anyway, um, so the problem was that when I set this thing up at the recording studio, I mapped the inputs to the proximity to the musician because the input jacks were in the walls that ultimately ran to the mixer. And right. so, you know, I had no choice really but to use these inputs for these particular instruments. Otherwise, I'd have wires crisscrossing the room and it'd be a big nightmare. Sure. So it turns out that after I moved out of that space, we no longer needed to have this crazy out layout. And the, the, what ended up happening was like two of the horns were at one end of the, you know, the, the, the list and, Right. You have to scroll all the way to the right to get the other two horns, and the vocalists were all over the place. So it doesn't make sense. You hand it to a sound guy, and they're like, what is this? So I <laughs> wanted to change, and I wanted to swap channels around and move them, but the software mm-hmm. didn't let me. But it did allow me to export a scene as a JSON file. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So me being a programmer, boing, you know, it's like, oh, I'll fix this. <laughs> Loaded the it up. The power of notepad compels you. That's right. And Visual Studio has this great feature where you can paste uh, JSON as classes, and it will turn that into C-sharp classes. The classes may not make any sense, but but it definitely takes the data representation and then, you know, that makes classes out of it. Long story short, or to make a short story longer anyway, I uh, was able to write a little console application in about three hours that I could, you know, put the list of channels up and swap them around and write out a new JSON file, work like a champ. I love being a programmer. Yeah, now you definitely used your superpowers that day. I did, and all the other musicians were like, I don't understand what you're speaking about. This is Star Trek. Uh, I don't know what you do, but anyway, <laughs> that's my story. Can you turn me up, please? <laughs> yeah, but that's not my better know framework. This is my oh. better no framework, and this is my better no awesome. framework music. All right, dude, what do you got? All right, so this was published by Medium.com, and uh, okay. or it's a blog post on Medium.com by mm-hmm. Shivam Verma, and it's from May 16th, the 10 best Visual Studio Code extensions. Oh, man. Since it's pretty recent, That's I thought pretty subjective. 
Yeah, it is subjective, but I thought that uh, you know we'd peruse these things because they are cool. Yeah, for sure. They may not be everybody's top ten, but I'm sure they are pretty awesome. Uh, Live share number one, one of my favorites in the list. Okay, it allows you to share your code actively with another person's VS code, so you can see each other's code, whom you want to share it with, and debug it together. That's pretty awesome. And then there's Live Server. It sounds the same as the Live Share extension, but completely different from it. It's a must for web developers just like me. It's helped me save countless hours and improve my efficiency. Uh, and there's links there too. Bookmark. Imagine you're writing thousands of lines of code and you make a mistake or there's a function not working correctly nested inside of other functions. Bookmark allows you to bookmark your functions or classes and use it to quickly navigate through your file. I use comments like to do. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> VS Code Icons adds little cute icons to your files. After this, you'll start loving your VS Code. Uh, Git Lens. Now, this is this sounds cool, and I didn't know about this. Hmm. With Git Lens, you can see who, why, and how the code has changed. I recommend everyone uh, get this extension. They all have positive feedback about it. It is highly customizable, and you can set it up according to you. In Visual Studio, we have you know uh, Git history, right? So you can look mm-hmm. back at all the check-ins right in visual studio but this is a cool little you know lens yeah it it's it's you're bringing a visual studio feature into code really which is cool yep it is cool and here's git history the next one you no longer have to see who edited the code in the terminal provides a beautiful visual of all the commits in the code and makes your coding experience a delight nice uh number seven javascript code snippets VS Code already has built-in JS IntelliSense, but JS Code Snippets extension adds class helpers, method triggers, and much more. Uh, number eight, the Turbo Console Log automatically completes your console message and makes debugging much easier, and you can easily understand what went wrong. Hmm, okay. I, it doesn't really describe what it does, but uh, yeah, we'll and, I'm, and, it, and I'm thinking I'm using Windows Terminal, which does that. Yeah. Uh, number nine, remote SSH. It allows you to use the remote machine with an SSH server as your environment. You don't need to code on your local machine. All can be done on the remote machine. In addition to it, all the extensions of your environment will get copied to your remote machine. And number 10, the regex previewer. <laughs> Making regex can be quite tricky and hard. This extension provides you with a regex that matches your expression, and you can easily make an expression for the desired inputs. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. I'm surprised that's 10, actually. If you need to write regex, you need some yeah. kind of tool to figure out. <laughs> Google Stack Overflow. Do what everybody else yes. does. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's what that's I cool, got man. today. Love it. That's Who's awesome. talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1671, which you did a little over a year ago, January 2020, with one Thomas Betts. When we talked about, quote, the perfect education for a software developer. Mm. So I think we're going to have a career conversation today. And I, I wanted to jump back into this, you know, Thomas Betts, who's been a long time listener to the show, too. It was great to have oh, him yeah. on. It was a great yep. conversation with him and generated a ton of comments, lots of feedback again a couple of years ago. But here's Rick's comment, which I thought was good fun. It says, the perfect education. And yet you don't even mention what that is. You don't even talk about what a perfect education is. Instead, you talk about the notions of communication, teamwork, all the soft skill stuffs. But the hard reality is that most developers today do have soft skills. This is 1980 when the only people who can code are math nerds who hate people. 
<laughs> Instead, the big push for soft skills come from the top down where managers who are completely inefficient and grandstanding for pointless meetings just to keep themselves in the loop artificially claim falsely that developers have poor communication and soft skills. This isn't true. Instead, the manager proposes bad ideas constantly because they don't understand the system. And when developers push back with the harsh realities, the manager claims that the devs can't communicate because they aren't being yes men to the bad ideas. Developers communicate fine and can work on teams fine. It's the bad managers who don't understand code and make horrible decisions based on flawed logic, refusing to learn coding logic and preference for truth, but instead feels and then blames the developers' soft skills as a problem instead of the bad management as a problem. You know, Rick, I'm thinking if your communication skills are that good, why doesn't your, why do you need your manager to understand programming? Hmm. Like there's a, there's a meeting point here somewhere. Yeah, you your know, job is to the, translate the, the the world of computers to the world of business. Yeah. And and I don't deny the fact that you can run into a situation where you have a boss who expects you to just agree with them. Like, that can be bad, too. But, you know, the, there's a, definitely a meeting point here in what effective communication actually looks like. And yeah. part of that is being able to translate into a language that can persuade someone who doesn't have the technical skills. Saying they don't have the technical skills, therefore they cannot be useful it's unfair and it's not true. Yeah. 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 So, but we're going to talk about that and more. And I wanted to bring that idea up. That it's like, Hey, do could developers communication skills? Sure. They do. The question is, are they really good? If you're going to, if you're good at developing, communicating with other developers, that's one thing. Can you communicate effectively with non-developers, especially leadership and understand what their motivations are? Right. So Rick, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. And if you send it in JSON format, it'll give me something else to stay up all night working on. <laughs> I'm going to take all your sentences and sort them into a different order and confuse musicians with them. <laughs> <laughs> you know when i was doing that project this mm -hmm. it generated like eight thousand lines of code and a lot of these were duplicate classes like channel one is a class channel two is a class they both have the same thing except for the all the gates and limiters like there's duplicate data all over the place so when i was done uh, I wanted to organize them so that they're in alphabetical order. And I tried three different Visual Studio extensions, and I couldn't get any of them to do it. And finally, I was so fed up, I just wrote my own. So I literally wrote a program to pull in a C-sharp file, pull out all the classes, put them in a dic assorted dictionary, and rewrite them. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, well, it yeah, took less it time to in than installing a an extension. <laughs> All I know is I find when I open JSON in Visual Studio, that's not something I actually wanted to do. No, you don't want to do that. <laughs> it's a text file. Stop it. All right. Well, let me introduce our guests. And I got to say, Richard, that these guys are the first guests ever that have not required Grammarly to fix any of the things in their bios. These guys wow. know how to write. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, they did just put out a book, so yeah. maybe that has something. So you'd figure that they they probably see what it is. They probably use Grammarly at themselves. Actually, I did. I did use Grammarly <laughs> <this night> beforehand. <laughs> I so. called it. That's awesome. 
That's All right. great. Well, uh, you know, it, only a few brownie points less, but you're, it's still, you know, the fact that you used it and gave us the, the good stuff. I'm never going to strike anyone against using a good tool to make better quality products. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, Chad Michael, I think that was the voice of Chad. Was that you, Chad? That was me. All right. So, Chad Michael wanted to create software programs since he was in the eighth grade. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in computer engineering and with a master's in computer science. Since graduation, he has spent almost 20 years creating software systems. Chad is CTO of Don't Panic Labs, a small tech company that focuses on bringing innovators' product ideas to life. And this role provides many opportunities to help clients solve problems through innovative software solutions. He's very interested in creating more and better software professionals. He does this by teaching at UNL, conferences, and co-founding NEDL, which is an education partnership with Doan University. Chad co-wrote his first book called Lean Software Systems Engineering for Developers. Chad's a lifelong Nebraskan. He grew up in rural Nebraska and now lives in Lincoln with his wife, son, and daughter. And Doug Durham is the co-founder and CEO of Don't Panic Labs. And uh, Doug has more than three decades of software engineering experience in a number of different industries. He's passionate about the process of solving problems through software and the application of sound engineering principles and patterns to these efforts. Doug is a proud Husker and has an electrical engineering degree from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where he has also taught in recent years. And Doug has also recently released his first book entitled, you guessed it, Lean Software Systems Engineering for Developers. Welcome, Chad and Doug. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. I do want to say, given all that background, my really role at Don't Panic Labs is to be the one people make fun of in meetings. I think that's really the, <laughs> really the role I play here. That's so. important. Class clown. <laughs> yeah. Or the target. I can relate, Chad. I can relate. Thank you. I appreciate it when someone else takes some of the fire. Yeah. I think some of the best leaders uh, are former good targets. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably right. <laughs> yeah. I realize now, too, that we've got this continent pretty much divided equally. Uh, right. With us yeah. being right in the middle. That's right. I'm in the hurricane zone. Richard is in the monsoon zone and in the uh, bear zone. And you guys are in the middle. Yep. Aren't you both in bear zones now? Yeah. Like the bears I, are everywhere. I, I think you're right. Um, I haven't seen any in my backyard lately, but they've been around in the town and they've been seen around locally. So, yeah. Yeah. Bears are making a comeback. Now, you, you know, the Pacific Northwest is best known for, you know, it only rained twice this week, once for three days and once for four. <laughs> but we're also not you know what i know about the midwest is you always say hey you don't like the weather wait a minute like it's it's and that doesn't happen here it, the weather changes slowly here but it, yeah. it's very it you know intends to be mild so we're we're in a string of sunny days right now this too shall pass <laughs> we uh love nebraska You've been to Nebraska, haven't you, Carl? Yes, we went to. Uh, we had one of the biggest crowds on a road trip ever in Omaha. Uh, mm-hmm. On one of those road trips, do you remember that, Richard? It yeah, just yeah. was we, huge, and it brought people from all the the cities around it. You know, the, so that the, it was a really great meeting. I, I like the contra- the contrast we had with Omaha, where like folks from five states came, right? As opposed to when we went to Los Angeles, where we had to do three shows. In Los Angeles. Right. Because people in Irvine will not drive to Pasadena. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yes. 
Admittedly, it took us longer to drive from Irvine to Pasadena than it did to drive from Denver to Omaha, but that's a separate conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and we had steaks, so there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Steaks are good there. Yeah. All uh, right. So we, what are we talking about here? We're talking about lean, and you guys have some experience with that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a little bit of a backstory here. So um, Chad has got a great background in formal education in, in, uh, in computer science and computer engineering. My, uh, my formal education in software development is a three credit hours of Fortran that I took at the University of Nebraska back in the mid-80s. All right. Nice. So, but we, you know, so we come from different backgrounds, and I've worked with Chad for 20 years now. And I had worked as a systems engineer at McDonnell Douglas right out of college on their aircraft programs. And so I kind of, I didn't know what an engineer did when I got out of college, but over the course of seven years, I got a sense for how it worked mm. in a very disciplined way. And then I came back to Nebraska in 1995 and started working for a series of small commercial software product companies. And I can just, it was just, I went from kind of order and rigor to chaos. Um, yeah. And it was really pretty striking for me. Um, and so I have, I feel like for the last 25 years, I've been spend, I've been on this journey for trying to reconcile these two worlds that I lived in. And probably about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, um, I started to realize that there, these, these worlds should, didn't need to be this far apart. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we, uh, with a company that we had founded in the early 2000s, an e-commerce platform that we, um, that we sold in 2006, we really started, we made, still were making a lot of mistakes, spilling a lot of blood on the floor, if you will. Um, but we were starting to see the various portions of the development process that, that could use a little more structure, uh, use a little more, you know, um, proven practices kind of, and, and I felt like I, at, at first I thought I was at a disadvantage without all this background and basis of computer science. Mm. And I started to realize that that just made me hungry to really understand what was out there. What were those, what were the things that were really um, kind of put in place or discovered or identified over the last 40 years that could be brought to bear to kind of making this a little more of a systematic, disciplined, quantifiable approach to building software. Yeah. And, and so we've really been kind of building on that over the last 15, 20 years for the last 10 years, we've been part of Don't Panic Labs, and we had this opportunity to um, start a new company. This was it, We're part of an organization called Nebraska Global where we kind of we raised a venture capital fund and then built this product development team called Don't Panic Labs that we're going to build and launch these software technologies using the VC money that we had in our fund. So we kind of compressed the model. Um, and we knew to do that, we were going to do a number of these different companies um, in, a, in thinking enterprise software. So... Uh, not not kind of commercial um, consumer software, but mostly systems that you're going to design and build and sell to people. And we knew this one development team was going to be able to do all these different things, build a public works infrastructure management system for small to medium-sized cities or build a computer vision application that was going to monitor patients in a hospital room and detect when they're going to get out of bed unattended. Different problem domains, but we want we, we're, we need to have these resources be flexible to be able to move around to these different, uh, at these different uh, products to kind of get them up, get them going, develop an MVP, and then move them somewhere else where they might be needed. We needed to really take this whole idea of, of a process or a system for building and designing and building software to a whole other level. And so that, that the last 10 years, we've really um, kind of accelerated that. 
Um, because in part of that, part of the benefit we had here was that we would have get a lot of reps about going from nothing, going from an idea to an initial version of a product to a version one, version two. We were doing it over and over and over again. Yeah. And you just don't get that many opportunities like that um, mm-hmm. in the in the real world. And so anytime we wanted to try something new, we knew that it was going to be a matter of weeks or months before we'd be able to test something out. Um, and so the 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 really the the the, the kind of the model we've been using uh, during this process was to tr- to try to um, leave nothing to chance, right? Look for those areas where we have variability in outcomes and try to see what are some lean type, sometimes even agile processes that we can put in place there that would reduce the uncertainty in terms of outcomes. Now Um, you're using lean, like the Toyota way lean. No, more like just kind of thin, you know, sort of, you know, and lightweight Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, um, we're, we're trying rather than, taking a look at, you know, taking a book off the shelf and reading something and saying, well, that's pretty heavy handed. We're just going to, but we're going to implement it as is. We've tried to really focus in on what are the core values that are being presented by that pattern of practice and just try to kind of roll them in incrementally um, and try to shed those things that maybe weren't as valuable to us as we thought they were and retain those things that we felt were super valuable and really created a lot of, um, a lot of benefit and a lot of impact. Because remember, we're we're still kind of wired like a startup, you know, where we want to mm-hmm. be we want to be conscious of our resources and and the timelines and things like that. So our goal was to create something that was somewhat comprehensive, even if it might have been a little more lightweight than what people might be used to in certain areas. Yeah, I mean, and I would argue the Toyota way was like that, right? It's, it's yeah, the they. It's a couple of rebrandings there, but the just-in-time manufacturing, like not carrying a lot of baggage, you know. And I think in the uh, over on the agile side, we called it Yagni, right? Like yeah. you're not going to need it. Just mm-hmm. build what is needed and nothing more. Yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't want to. I just didn't want to give you the impression that we were kind of following any sort of um, defined protocol. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. it too. Because yeah. people then chase around the details of Deming's writing from the 1950s and why it doesn't map perfectly onto a 2020 piece of software. Right, right, mm. exactly. So you're basically taking a, a, a very practical and step-based approach to it then. Uh, is yeah. it, it But it sounds a little bit agile. I, agile, you said, uh, I think you mentioned that in your... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... You know, getting back to Richard, you were talking about kind of educating developers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, when we, you know, we we started hiring a bunch of brand new developers. So when back in the early two thousand, most of the people that were working with me were people like me. They were their degree was in accounting. That one guy had a uh, he had a uh, theology uh, degree from Harvard Divinity School. I mean, it was we were all over the board, right, in terms of where we came from. And so we were self-taught, very much self-taught. And we might have been able to get away with that in the 90s for the most part. Um, but now it's like we have to hire people out of college with, you know, that have some sort of formal education in this, or it's just going to be mm-hmm. a huge investment to get them going. But the problem with the kids coming out of college is that most of them are still getting computer science degrees. And, right. you know, and that is, you know, I, I, I think it was – I've seen this in a couple of different places. I, did, I read this. David Parnas was one of the people who wrote this. It's like, if you're going to compare 
computer science to software engineering, that's like comparing physics to civil engineering, right? That's true, right. yeah. And, and so when they come out, they have a good foundation in some areas of the body of knowledge of computer science, but in the areas that really matter in application development, they're really lacking in any sort of experience. I mean, most computer science programs have a three credit hour course in software engineering. That, that's, the, that's it, that's all they get. And right. often that class is optional. Yeah, if they want to go to work for Intel or AMD or something, that's a good degree. But uh, building applications, not not very practical. When they get into the career field, then they're leaning on that computer science degree, and so you know they're you know as you might expect, building these complex applications, there's a they're making a lot of errors in judgment, and in the end, that's kind of that's kind of what what where where things go wrong. People are making malicious decisions that cause software to age poorly or to not work. They just make errors in judgment. And that's, that's why we're trying that that's where kind of a systematic structured approach to the whole process, that integrated process of building software. Yeah. Leaning on that can reduce errors in judgment. Right. Um, and, and, and focusing on the, the outcomes that we all want from that. And part of this is also, you know, we're looking, you know, like university trying to help them. Um, Cause one thing I think they do a great job is they do give them that good foundation. You know, and that's the thing we need from those degrees, but they're missing mm-hmm. often and they're getting better at it, by the way. Those really the work, the aspect that is really important is programming is a team sport. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. rarely do you get to operate independently. You know, we need better processes and places and things, helping people work together as a team. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like that caller, you know, developers are good, you know, communicators or your, your letter. Um, improving some of improving some of those skills, so we are one better at communicating with those business people, but also better communicating internally. Uh, how often do people not even know what each person's working on on a project? How often do you see projects where people aren't doing the most basic of things, like just following some sort of task board? You know, it gets off in a hurry, and um, trying to make sure those processes are being followed and those good processes are being pushed on people. Yeah. Um, so they kind of understand why that's valuable at an early phase as well. I think it's something that's kind of missing. I think they are getting that how to write a sorting algorithm, you know, kind of example, which isn't super useful because you're just going to call dot sort anyways. Right. But um, they get some of that knowledge, but they're not really getting uh, a lot of that good team aspect as well. It's another thing that I think is missing. Are you, but are you starting to see people being educated as computer and en- software engineers now? Like I've certainly been concerned about that and have pushed on it on the show over the years, but I get feedback more often these days saying, look, here's a, a software engineering degree. Like these things do exist. Yeah. They're rare. I mean, they're yeah, very so. rare because, you know, up until five years ago, the university of Nebraska did not have a software engineering degree. And we, we mm-hmm. really pushed for them to develop that and not just to take computer science and kind of the computer science curriculum and kind of, you know, make it, you know, put a few more electives in there. They needed to rethink about how it was being taught completely. Yeah. You know, and, and so they started, and I know like Iowa State in our era, Iowa State's got a software engineering degree, but again, it, it doesn't differ, you know, at least last time I looked at it, you know, seven or eight years ago, it didn't really, it, it's different from a computer science degree, but not like the difference between a physics degree and a mechanical engineering degree. Sure. Mm. And I, as some of the best developers I've ever met were EEs, were electrical engineers who <laughs> got smitten with the control systems and then that took over their career. But the way their engineering degree shaped their thinking, they I, wrote I, really good quality stuff. I got a, I got a great story. You don't like to give anything that would help Doug feel better about himself, Richard. <laughs> so just as a little side note, that's a, can we edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> 
When I got hired at McDonnell Douglas. As an EE? They hired me as an electrical engineer. I was not going to be programming. I was a system engineer. So really, I was the guy who was um, integrating all the different avionics systems on these aircraft. So like the F-18 program, the YF-23 and things like that. Mm-hmm. I, st- I worked a lot with the the software development group, the Department 312 back in the time is what they were. And I, I, I still have a lot of good friends. We go golfing twice a year still, you know, even though I haven't lived there since 95. But they were all electrical engineers. I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I was like, I, I was like why, why are they hiring so many electrical engineers here? And when I asked them, they said um, they find it much easier to hire an engineer to, to teach them how to code than to hire a computer science major and teach them how to think like an engineer. Wow. Interesting. I thought that, you know, get, granted, that was 30 some years ago, but I, that really stuck with me um, at the time. I thought that was really curious uh, that they did that. Um, so I, that's just kind of to your point, Richard, about mm-hmm. it is a, it's a different mindset. You have to teach it differently too. You just cannot, you know, people find a way to be successful. I'm not, this is, I'm not here to say computer science degrees are bad. We need more people mm-hmm. getting any kind of formal education in software. Right. But sure. I, to your point, Richard, formal education need, software needs to be better. Yeah. Yes. Mm. It needs to be better. And we've kind of convinced the University of Nebraska here that that's where they need to, you know, us and the rest of the industry around here, that that's where they need to invest is in the software engineering program. And it is the, uh, it's the fastest growing program here at UNL. Computer mm. science has kind of leveled up. The software engineering program is growing uh, now, that's which is really to be cool. expected. Hey, gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. .NET Rocks is brought to you this week by Couchbase. Couchbase is a modern, multi-cloud-to-edge, SQL-friendly JSON document database for building applications with agility, performance, and scale. If you're new to Couchbase and would like to learn more, the Couchbase Developer Portal is the best place to start. It's loaded with tutorials, videos, and documentation, as well as best practice tips, quick start guides, and community resources including the Couchbase Developer Community Forum. Ready to get started developing on Couchbase? Visit couchbase.com slash .NET rocks. That's couchbase.com slash period N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. How do you know that your app will be supportable in production unless you're using logs in dev and QA? Try Seek for centralized logging you can host yourself anywhere, including on your development machine. Go to datalust.co slash seek. That's datalust.co slash S-E-Q to learn more. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey, hey, hey. And we're chatting here with Chad Michael and Doug Durham, who I did not know was an EE when I started this conversation. So I just walked right into that one. Not a bad thing. I've got, I've got some other friends who are EEs as well. They're all... It's just such a tough curriculum. Like, but you know, the other thing I think I was interesting about it, you know, making the distinction there is like the first two years of engineering, doesn't matter what you're taking, kind of the same. You know, it's sort of there's a foundational thinking part of electric, of engineering. And then you go into your civil branch, into your chemical branch, into your electrical branch and so forth. And I would hope that, that computing would be the same, that development would be the same. It's like, and then you go into the development side of engineering. And my brother's a perfect example of this. He got a degree uh, from University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, in uh, naval engineering, naval architecture, marine engineering. 
and he uh, took to programming like a fish to water, no pun intended. But uh, and now he's a hotshot programmer. You know, one thing this this applies to software engineering and engineering in general. But I I think we need to rethink the way we're teaching engineering in general too, because mm-hmm. you know even now, so I've got two two of my children are mechanical engineers. Um, gone through Nebraska, as a matter of fact, so more Huskers. The um, the first two years, you're taking a lot of foundational, like science, math, and things like that. And there is most in most cases, there is no course there that it, that is taught or in the engineering's course catalog. They're all in arts and sciences and stuff like that. And most kids that are sophomore, freshman, sophomore, really don't know what an engineer does, and they really don't start getting into it until they're an upperclassman in terms of kind of trying to pull everything together. And the thing I think we're missing is they need to be doing more unstructured kind of problem solving where the solution is not deterministic. Yeah, you know, I don't, it doesn't have to be complicated, but, but they got to get into that mode of I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to design something that works outside the laboratory. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to see them have more that problem solving um, design, creating things happening as a freshman. Hacking and have have that three yeah any of that make it required too because the students will not opt they don't know what's good for them they won't opt into it you know <laughs> voluntarily yeah because last know, time so. I checked in the real world not all inputs are known exactly yeah, yeah. and exactly. there's no Almost one always. perfect outcome either like yeah. there are many yes. ways to be successful in that space yeah and they spend a lot of time analyzing which is good you need to analyze systems to try to understand how they work. And then the idea is you can translate that to designing novel systems and things sure. like that. But I think they could really enhance that. And that's kind of the, the same thing I think you need in software engineering as well. You know, they're getting that through internships, but they need it through the curriculum. I think they should be teaching problem solving in, in uh, early education as well. And they don't, yeah. you know, they're, yeah. it's all about taking tests and passing tests. Well, and, it, and I think that's beaten into them too. Cause you think about the yep. first few years of school there's way more problems you know i see elementary kids all willing to experiment and try and, yeah. and do all of those things i mostly speak to middle schoolers to so the great the grade six grade seven grade eight mm. types and they've just started to begin to realize that what's important is get the answer the teacher wants yeah not to think right yeah you know? and and that's going to work for the system ultimately and it, it's disturbing because then they get out in the world where we really kind of need them to think yeah like, Things aren't just going to line up perfectly for them out there. Yeah, there is an, make- uh, that, that there is no correct answer. There is right. only successful outcomes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and there's many successful outcomes. Yes. You're often weighing which one's the best one we're going to use to get there in this situation. That's well, that's huge. And I think I do find most experienced engineers I talk to them. It's like good enough is a goal, right? Yeah. It's like let's not spend any more time on analysis. We've crossed a threshold of acceptability. Stop. Start executing. Mm. I think it creates this. Environment. I see this in my kids who are in their early twenties. The world for a lot of young people is very black and white, you know, mm-hmm. and yes and no, very binary yeah. in terms of things. And when you get older, you realize the world looks a lot more like my hair. It's very much shades of gray and there's very few things that are absolutes. And that's the same thing with designing systems. You're making trade-offs all the time. Yeah. You know, there is right. no one perfect answer. Well said. Old now, guy philosophy. Uh, Yay. Nice. <laughs> well, we got a bunch of them on the call today. Uh, yeah. I'm a little worried about that McDonald Douglas example from the perspective of hiring only EEs, which I totally get why they did that. They were also like in the defense group with a significant budget. It's like, do we really need all developers to also be engineers? 
Probably not. I think, you know, mm. for a small company like us, you know, where we have, you know, we've, you know, we've, we're pushing about 40 people and probably about 30 of them are, are software engineers. We have small teams. They're, they're creating novel applications. We really need people who are really good generalists, the people who can, mm-hmm. who can wear a lot of different hats. But as you get for larger companies, you start to get more specialization, right? And yeah. I think that there, I do think there are roles for people that don't require a four-year degree. Um, um, I, you know, I, I, you know, it's hard to tell where things are going to kind of go with some of the technologies sure. and frameworks and things like that. But, but if you're building, you know, if you're going to build distributed systems, if you're going to build cloud-based systems that require security and you have to design and decompose systems to allow for, you know, granular scalability, you're going to need some background and experience right. in engineering for that. Yeah. They, there's always going to be pieces of that. But, you know, I'm thinking of the example of like building the bridge. There's only one PNG, right? The person whose name's on the paperwork that says that build, bridge is built correctly. And there may be a few other engineers around to do some details and so forth the engineer checks on. But I got all the respect in the world for the guys who are pouring that concrete. You know, that is a craft. That is skills. And also has and to they be may not right. be able to sign off. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, I think that you end up with a mixture of skill sets that are valued. Because like, also specialization takes a lot of time. Yeah. You know, and they're valuable think, too. Think what it would take to get to that. I think it, it, it was Yuval Louis who first in, told me the, this idea that the coding is the manufacturing part of software. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and engineering is everything that's going on, you know, in the mezzanine behind the glass walls who are overlooking the manufacturing floor, right? In, but... You know, if we had a, if, 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 if we were building software the way we build airplanes, you could put people who have very niche skills into the manufacturing of that airplane. You know, mm-hmm. it's not that, not that they're not highly skilled, but they, they know how to build, you know, the, a wing. You know, they may not know how to design a wing. They may not, they may not even know how to design how to manufacture a wing, right? They probably have some good input into that. But if you're just if you're going out there and saying, well, you know, hey, build a, you know, build me an airplane, um, people who don't have a strong background in that, they're going to flounder, right? I yeah. Mean, they, so I think this well, that just speaks to the the need to have systems for the way we design and build software. I think we're at a place right now where it's like, hey, we got a wing guy, let's build an airplane, and that's all they got. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so yeah, we made the case for engineers making good software developers. What about musicians? I hear a lot of <laughs> of corollaries between uh, good musicians and good developers. What's your thought on yeah. that? Well, I definitely think you're right. I, de- you know, I think um, I'm tr- I, I'm trying to think of somebody in my background. Well, one of the guys I that from the from the nineties that I worked with, he was a musician. And I do think, you know, we, what part of what that partnership with uh, Doan university was a, was a way for us to develop a program to bring in people from the community where a four year degree is not accessible to them and send them through what we call an accelerated program. Like much like nursing's got an accelerated bachelor of science and nursing program where you go full time for a year. You may come in with a biology degree, you come out with a, a BSN in nursing. And, so we modeled it after IEEE's uh, guidelines for a software engineering curriculum. And our goal is to go out there in the community and find people that may not have uh, a, you know, a math degree. Well, if they did, that'd be great. We all know math people would be good in this field, but music degrees, somebody somewhere where you've, um, you, you've been able to work, in, you know, demonstrate some aptitude that is applicable 
and might mean that you could be successful in here and and be able to bring them then through a program that can produce a software developer coming working with abstractions i think is a a a key cross uh skill between musicians and uh you know and, and developers I, I also appreciate, and it's got to hang around with you, Carl, Carl, so much. Musicians practice. Yeah. And, and a lot of the, the most extraordinary developers I've ever seen practice, which is that they write code that they're not shipping or not being paid for. Yeah. And it presses against the edges of their skills. Yep. Like watching you on Money the Money Road Trips play scales, yeah. you know, work on a riff, like genuinely unpleasant kind of stuff. Right. Because it's not playing. And then you'd reward yourself with a song at the end of the hour. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I do the same thing with code. You know, I'm I'm constantly, like like this thing I was telling you about with the mixer. Um, I, I did that because I had a need for it, but also it was a good challenge. And, it, I, you know, kept me up all night. It was fun. It was practice. I think, I think that goal of constantly learning and musicians, you know, kind of like constant practice, constant learning is critical and constantly taking on those little things that maybe you're not paid for just because you want to. I mean, musicians are kind of constantly kind of refining their skill all the time. A developer has to constantly be doing that as well. It can't be just what you're doing during your eight to five. You've got to be outside learning. Um, all the great developers you work with always are trying to constantly learn, learn that next thing. The fact that you kind of went out, you know, you took that JSON and made the world better for a bunch of people seemed almost probably like a, magi- like a, like a magician to people. Like, how did you pull this right. off? You know, I think that's part of what you're looking for in people that kind of innate desire. Yeah, I saw a quote from Neil Peart recently, and I can't tell you exactly what it was, but I'll paraphrase. He said, you know, I hear complaints from, you know, drummers who see a great drummer or a great musician and think to themselves, uh, why bother? You know, I'll never be as good as that person. And, you know, when I listened to a great Buddy Rich solo, it made me want to just go practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have yeah. to kind of have a, a loose ego in that way. Like you can't be trying to compete for the best software developer in the world position. Well, and let's face it, every time we've dealt with someone who really, really wanted to be the best person, smartest person, most available person in the room, they were pretty toxic too. Like it that's just be. not a good mindset. Yeah. And most of the time, the for, when I asked the whole room, like who's the smartest person in the room, that's the kindest person in the room too. Yeah. Like they're, but actually, if you get that classic super smart developer, that's usually the person's code you don't want to maintain either, right? Yeah. yeah. There's an interesting part about <laughs> making maintainable code is not necessarily the cleverest. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Another lesson you learn as an old guy, right? <laughs> Chad, you know, Chad's one of the, the one of the most gifted software, I would say software engineers I, I've ever worked with. But he's a perfect example of somebody who we would call humbly confident. You know, that there there's just enough you know, they, they, they're not paralyzed to, to, you know, when they're faced with a challenge to take right. it on. They, they feel like we can solve the problem, but they're not so confident that they don't have a little bit of doubt about their approach or want to get feedback on a decision. So Chad will ask me questions and I'm telling you, I'm the worst programmer at Don't Panic Labs, but he would hmm. come to me and ask me questions. What do you think about this? And I just feel, I feel like that's such a good trait mm-hmm. for people who, you know, are one are going to be great leaders again. I think, but also just for people who can get into an organization and they will not be toxic. People are going to rally around people like that. You never know where the great idea is though, either. That's kind of one other thing you need to kind of learn in software as you have these big teams. You don't never know which one of those people 
has like the better, you know, a good answer for this problem. If you do run into a tough thing, sometimes different people of different backgrounds will approach problems differently. Hmm. And that's another thing. Hopefully we can solve over time in our industry is get people of more varied backgrounds to help. When we, we've to have done whole shows specifically on having diversity in a team. Yeah. And I think you bring up a real valid point about that. So when you ask a question, you get a different answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Going on another thread here. That's something I'm a little bit worried about in our, in our, in the, in the makeup of our teams. Now I mentioned mm -hmm. that, you know, this team I was a part of in the late nineties, I don't think there was anybody there that had a computer science degree, mm -hmm. you know, and now almost everybody in my organization has a computer science degree. And I do in the back of my mind, this little warning light is telling me that I now have an organization whose educational background is very homogenous. Yeah. You know, right. and, and I, and I get, a you know, we have, we have diversity in other areas, you know, uh, uh, gender and things like that. But, but I, 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 I long for getting those people in who that, that person who's got the divinity degree from Harvard. Right. Right. And just looks well, you, at and the you, world a little bit differently. Is, is it, and is it just, we've created a hiring practice that's creating homogeneity. That's not necessarily constructive ultimately. I'm worried about that. Yeah, I, I, I do yeah. think, I do think it'll have an impact on our problem solving in, in a way. I don't, I can't quantify that, but I'm, I am a little concerned mm -hmm. about that. It's like having a colorblind person on the design team. Yeah. You know, for 100%. example, yeah. you know, you nailed it. To, that's exactly the point. And I think you, one of the challenges you have when you get to a certain size is you start having professional hiring people like a skilled HR people are incredibly valuable. And, it, and, and having a system that can routinely bring skilled people in. But if they're, especially in this particular industry, for better or worse, mm. that we put that strong educational requirement on there, who are we leaving behind that oh, would yeah. be so valuable to our team because they didn't have a particular piece of paper? Yeah, I, I think that's particularly challenging when you're trying to increase the uh, gender diversity in your organization, because I can't quote you the studies on this, but there is the, the, the essence is that if, if you have a very detailed list of requirements for a position, men in general will look at that and say, well, I, I meet some of those. I'll go ahead and apply for this job. Women will look at it and say, I don't meet all of those. So I'm not qualified. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did the show. I think it was on the run as side and uh, ages ago with an, uh, with an experienced female IT person. And I'm sorry, I've, I'll have to look up her name. She was so brilliant, but she quoted that study and it was 40% to 80%. So it was like, I'll give you 10 requirements that you need to have for this job. And you do, you've got these requirements, or it's like, here are the requirements you have. Here are a bunch of jobs which you apply for. And if a man had four of 10, they would apply for the job. And if a woman wouldn't apply to the job that they had eight of 10. Yeah. That's scary. And isn't neither it? one of them shaped the outcome of the job. Like that wasn't the thing. Wow. Right. Right. That's scary because I, I know, you know, having being someone who's been responsible on, on certain occasions to define an advertisement for a position, I'll be honest, I really didn't give that much thought to it. You know, I put down the things that we did and, and it just horrified me to think that I might have created a barrier to yeah. somebody coming into this organization because of the way I constructed that. So knowledge well, and, and of that you, is and important. <laughs> and you're speaking to another level here too, which is they didn't even apply for the job. You yeah. never knew about them I never because knew of the them. way you wrote the job description. And to that kind of, you know, talking probably the best, one of the other ways to kind of solve, we've talked a lot about education. Mm -hmm. Now we need to try to solve it at an earlier age as well. You know, getting um, programming and, programming concepts introduced to people earlier in school 
know, I think there's good research that the earlier things get introduced to people, the more likely people are to join this field. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can introduce software, even at a little bit of a level in the eighth grade, yeah. like my example from the thing, I knew I wanted to program at the eighth grade, but that's because I had an Apple II in our school and I could kind of play with that. And oh, that was kind of fun doing a little programming, getting that right. introduced for more people. Uh, maybe not Apple IIs. Maybe we can go all the way up to a, you know, a, oh, a classic good Windows XP machine or something. I don't know. But we need to get something or a in smartphone. there for them to do <laughs> yeah, yeah, a smartphone. Yeah, a smartphone. Well, I think that, that's one of the problems you're dealing with now, Chad, is that everybody is touching a computer now. They just don't think of it as something that's programmable. Hmm. It's just, you know, this is the fancy, this used to be a paper magazine, but now I can pinch and zoom it because it's iPad shaped, hmm. right? But I think it's very interesting to talk to young people who have had computers and internet in their lives or their whole lives. But they and don't know they're just not it. that impressed by programming either. Like their relationship to programming is going to be fundamentally different because it's always been there. Yeah. You got to show kids like really fun kind of uh, uh, subversive kind of things to write, you know, that kids would get a <laughs> kick out of. I, f- I find that's uh that's the, the key to grabbing a kid is, you know, uh, I remember going uh, into a Radio Shack, and this is dating me, Radio Shack, what's that? Uh, when, in, when that was a thing. In the 80s, and they were selling their TRS-80 machines, and uh, they would be running a basic program, you know, that was just sort of like this promo program and whatever. And I knew something about programming, so I'd run up to it and press Control-C and clear the program and start with line 10. What's your name? Question mark. A dollar sign. You know, input. A dollar sign. And line twenty. F U. A dollar sign. <laughs> Pause and then go to ten. <laughs> and I just walk out. And like, oh, that's very good. Thanks. But you know, stuff like that just tickled me to no end when I was a kid. But it didn't have to be like that. It could be like you know, making a game or a simple. Hack well, man you've game done this with you know, showing them, showing kids controlling a drone, like giving it right. the physicality. Yep. Although, yeah. let's face it, walking them through building a fart app on a smartphone would work just exactly. as well. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was also thinking the fart app, given that I had a teenager. That was like where I was at. Well, what does my kid want? Probably a fart Absolutely. app. Absolutely, yeah, it's a high tech whoopee cushion. I loved those yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Practical In many jokes. ways, I'm envious of them. You know, I grew up with the Erector set. I used the heck mm-hmm. out of my Erector set. Yeah. You know, and, and now today's Erector set is a, you know, it's a Arduino and a bunch of, um, you know, um, yep. oh, I forgot what they shields, shields and, and things yeah, like wheels. that. I'm like, yeah, breadboards. It, very jealous. Today's Erector set is Minecraft, right? <sighs> That's a good Erector one, too. Set. Yeah. You know what? Minecraft, though, seems to be very boy oriented. My girls were reluctant to get into that be- just because they knew of, boys who were so into it and were you know just i don't know she she had the aptitude for it but she was like no i don't want to get into minecraft and yeah yeah. the culture of it was a challenge yeah the culture didn't fit one of the best 25 dollars i ever spent was um i bought kerbal space program for my oldest son when he was um a freshman in in high school and this is a time where they weren't sure what they really wanted to do and he he played that game. I can remember one day he came in, My his mother uh, and I were in our bedroom. He comes in just like hyperventilating. And we're like, Parker, what, what happened? What, what happened? He's like, he's like, I just docked two space, two, two spacecraft in orbit. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. and you know, cause he was making a big deal about not using the, the cheat codes or the helpers. He wanted to really make it work given the yeah. really sophisticated orbital dynamics model that 
Kerbal Space Program has. And he got into mechanical engineering because of that program. Wow. That was, That's awesome. And uh, I, I thought that – so I, I, I share that with anybody who's got kids in high school that might be in engineering. I'm like – Go get them Kerbal Space Program. I think yeah, Richard they like used that, to they'll... play that to no end. I remember being at oh, your yeah, house and watching play it. But so useful to talk. You know, you'd always recognize the kid in the school that played Kerbal Space Program because they were carrying a normal mechanics book with them. <laughs> <laughs> because the because it act, the normal mechanics are remarkably accurate in, in Kerbal. They, I, it's astonishing because it's an insanely hard problem. There's a couple of great videos from the guys. Who, how did they simplify it to make it work in Unity, mm. right? In a, in a relatively simple gaming environment. And they did a good job of it, right? They, but it is fascinating what pokes that younger generation to head down that path. I'm still concerned about the core issue, I think, here, which is I think we need to add that too much of the, we got a wing guy, let's build an airplane. Like the layer of engineering we have to add on top of a lot of software. Yeah. A, a lot of software practices. And the, and the lack yeah. of just general knowledge of what that yeah. is, right? You know, it, it would be nice if we had an engineer in every org and an engineer in every team, just one. But I think ultimately, because that person would be that font of knowledge and practice to add that layer of engineering to software in general, that would make all the products better. I think that would be huge for all of us, right? Yeah, yeah we talk about that. We talk about that in the book. We use the analogy. Mm -hmm. We're in Nebraska, so you can't, you know, even though we've been had some down years in football, we still love our football team. But, mm -hmm. you know, we, we look at a, a guy like Scott Frost, who's a coach in Nebraska right now, and he comes in and he's got, they talk about systems. I've got a system for running this team. I've got a, I've got a, a system for the way we train people. And, they, and so they take all these very skilled players and they make them part of that system and they educate them. And they learn something about the game. And I look at Nick Saban at Alabama. There's a guy who leaves nothing to chance when it comes to his football program. And so we, we have a, we have a chapter in the book about kind of re-envisioning what that technical leadership looks like mm. to get them to think about being more like a head coach, not just to, you know, rah, rah and support people, but actually to, to, to develop and identify a system that then all these skilled people can kind of work within. And like Chad yeah. likes to say, fall in the pit of success. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. And allow them to kind of learn that system and grow and expand their knowledge across the whole software engineering body of knowledge while they're also producing and contributing to the team within some guardrails, keeping them from making those errors in judgment. Make the majority of people of ordinary ability be able to be successful. Which is really the key. To, that's engineering, yeah. right? You know, well, and it's the thing when bad systems, it takes extraordinary people just to get to the goalposts. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So right. putting a good system in place isn't going to solve all your problems, but it's going to increase the likelihood of more people being successful. Yeah. And just have a positive feedback loop too. Yeah. Unless yeah. reliant on that, what somebody called that virtuoso performance, requiring yes. a virtuoso performance for success. That that's yeah. not engineering. That's we only deliver software when we death march, right? Like that <laughs> kind of mindset. Uh, it, uh, but I, and I appreciate that the virtue of performance, it shouldn't be a miracle that we ship software. Right. Right. Yeah. It should right. be. It should be the likely outcome. <laughs> right. Not not the miracle event that it often is, where everybody has like this almost relief that it actually somehow achieved the goal. Yeah. Right. You know, where they're almost wondering how they did it themselves. But you know, you even you guys, like experienced engineers, after you build something successfully, you look at it and doesn't it? Don't you ever think, I'm amazed this stuff even works at all? You know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think anything we use that is built on it, all that NPM soup that's out yeah. there, I think I'm always a little impressed that that. I'm always all comes impressed. At the end. Yep. Yeah. Not with me, just with the fact that you put so many layers of electrons together in the right way, and the and the outcome is amazing. Well, guys, thank you very much. It's a great book. Yep. I'm really looking forward to reading it, and uh, I'm, thank you very much for sharing this hour with us. Well, thank you so much. You bet. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was nice to meet you guys. And you great too. Great to chat with you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.